Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, are you looking forward to vacation? I am. I love a good vacation. Me too. Good vacation, you know, just really, uh, really recharges you. Yeah, and I've been thinking about. I mean, it's only May, right? And my mm-hmm. va- my vacation's not until July. And I like every couple of days, I just sit there and think, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> one day I will be going on you vacation. <laughs> now, a lot of people don't know this, but compulsory vacation in the United States was almost a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, William Howard Taft, in 1910, he proposed giving American workers two to three months of paid vacation Whoa. every year. Can you imagine? I really cannot imagine how that would work. But, but again, I'm speaking from the, the vantage point of today's modern uh, vacation-adverse culture. It, yeah, particularly in the United States. Mm-hmm. So you, you hear that, you know, two to three months, 1910, and you sort of wonder what Americans would be like if they had that mm-hmm. uh, today, how that would change the culture. Um, of course, this brings up this idea of a rather question. When did humans start vacationing in earnest? And we can't say, ah, this, this exact date. We can't point to it. But we have a couple of clues because according to psychologist Jessica de Bloom, Ancient hieroglyphic graffiti found engraved into the walls of the pyramid of Djoser state, quote, Hadnakte and his brother Panakte have been here to make an excursion and enjoy Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> These hieroglyphics date back to 2,000 years ago. Yeah, I'm picturing um, Hanakte and Panakte with their Rick Steves uh, travel backpacks uh, standing in ancient Egypt. I love that they just put a little graffiti, too, on yeah. the pyramid. Like, you know, instead of Julie was here or Robert was here, it's like, hey, we were here. We were visiting from Memphis. That was the vacation blogging of the day. Indeed. Uh, very short and to the point. Uh, the etymological origin of the word vacation also dates back to the time of the Roman Empire and stems from the Latin word vacatio, which means being free from, hmm. being at leisure or having time for. And yet, it wasn't until the 20th century that some nations began to recognize and institutionalize vacations. All right. So where are we now uh, in terms of uh, vacation uh, appreciation and vacation deprivation? Well, there's a 2013 survey that came out that was uh, handled by Expedia. And uh, they looked at different uh, countries, different cultures to see, all right, who's who's really maxing out on their available vacation, who's pulling back, who has the most available, uh, et cetera. And uh, they found that the average Japanese worker gets 13 days off each year, but only takes five. Um, and uh, in a similar vein, South Koreans uh, get an average of uh, 19 days off, but only takes seven. So that's kind of like the low end of of, uh, of taking advantage of your vacation in the modern world. Uh, here in America, uh, Americans tend to get 12 days off a year on average. Uh, they'll take 10 of it, again, on average, while Mexicans get 14 days of vacation and only take 10. So we haven't really hit in upon any of the real vacation lovers yet. For that, uh, by and large, you have to go to Europe because Europeans in general tend to score 25 to 30 vacation days a year. Um, and among the European uh, nations, uh, the French and Spanish tend to take the full 30 available to them. Uh, Germans tend to take only 28. And for another high vacation uh, country, you have to travel across the ocean to Brazil, uh, where they follow suit and generally take the full 30. 
Wow, that's yeah. very leisurely. Yeah, Beautiful. So top of the spectrum, Brazil, Spain, France, and Germany. Bottom, uh, South Korea and Japan. Now, I know we alluded to this, but the U.S. is the only advanced economy with no national vacation policy. And one in four workers have no paid vacation at all, which makes you wonder, are we just really addicted and obsessed with work, or is the structure just not there to support vacationing? Well, Americans tend to put more hours in during so-called leisure hours at night and on weekends, pointing to this idea that we might be sort of addicted to our work. And mm-hmm. economists Don Hammermesh and Elena Stancanelli published their findings on American work habits in 2014. And they found that in a typical weeknight, a quarter of U.S. employees did some kind of work between 10 at night and 6 in the morning. Wow. Yeah. That seems very hardcore. And on the weekends, uh, one in three workers in the U.S. were on the job. Now, you can compare that to one in five in France, Germany, and the Netherlands. So what happens when you take these hardworking Americans and you strong arm them into something called deliberate periodic rest? Well, they don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) And we know this because there's a four-year study by Leslie Perlow of the Harvard Business School and her colleagues who tracked the work habits of employees at the Boston Consulting Group. And in one experiment, each of five consultants on a team took a break from work one day a week. That's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's a significant chunk of your work week. And then in a second experiment, every member of a team scheduled one weekly night of uninterrupted personal time, even though they were accustomed to working from home in the evening. So not even checking your email, right? Mm-hmm. So understandably, people in this experiment, they felt a little bit annoyed by this, right? Because their routines had been disrupted and they felt like they might get behind or they would be out of the loop. And uh, this is the thing, though. After five months, employees experimenting with deliberate periodic rest were more satisfied with their jobs, more likely to envision a long-term future at the company, and more content with their work-life balance and prouder of their accomplishments, they just had to have it forced upon them, like essentially tased in the hallway and uh, their their work email removed from their phone. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, hey, now, now you must rest, mandatory rest. But this mandatory rest really helped them to reset their minds. And in order to do that, you have to get to something called the default mode network. Yeah, the default mode network. And we've talked about this before uh, in previous uh, podcasts. I think it came up especially during uh, the Scientist and the Shaman episodes we did uh, dealing with the uh, psychedelics. But uh, essentially it boils down to this, you, the stream of human consciousness, right? That's the analogy we tend to to, to use. Uh, but if we were to use the, the, the more fluid dynamic-y term, uh, it's not a single stream, but it's more like an elaborate convergence of currents and bodies. Then even when we're resting, there's a lot of activity going on. Uh, in fact, we've known since the early 20th century that there's actually a considerable amount of activity in the resting brain. Now, granted, a lot of that is simply your brain maintaining unconscious control of the, spa- of the body spaceship, but uh, a lot of stuff is going on under the hood. Um, if we go back to 1990, that's when a team of neuroscientists led by uh, Marcus Raschel of Washington University in, in St. Louis discovered that the brain constantly demands 20% of all the energy the body produces. And if you really need to put your thinking cap on for something, you know, to you know, do your taxes or, you know, tr- try and figure out what the, the tip is at, uh, at a restaurant, <laughs> um, anything math for me, I guess, um, you're only going to add 5 to 10% on top of that. 
It's kind of like looking into the processes section of the window task manager, right? You suddenly see all these different things going on, and you're wondering, well, what's using all of the resources of the computer? Well, um, in this research, they also noted that a certain set of scattered brain regions quieted down during serious contemplation. So you're, you put on the thinking cap, and these sections go quiet. But then they crank back up when the patient's mind is just idly wandering and daydreaming, uh, and they were engaged in coordinated communication with one another. So... Scientists came to label this daydreaming chatter as the default mode network, though we now know that it's just one of at least five different resting state networks that are involved in vision, hearing, uh, movement, attention, and memory. So it's in this state that, you know, on a good day, you're, you know, you're sitting there, you're just thinking idly, your thoughts are kind of doing their own thing, and you're, you know, thinking about something you're excited about in the future. You're thinking about, you know, some pleasant memory in the past or something you saw on TV, right? Uh, general, you know, mundane or pleasant stuff. But then also on a bad day, this is where the brain is gnawing on itself, right? Uh, you're worrying over work stress, you're, uh, it's bashing us in the face with embarrassing or, or downright traumatic memories from the past. So it's a place of introspection, a place of depressive thoughts, and uh, it's a place of endless egoic tinkering with the story narrative that we build around our lives. And one of the reasons why it's so important to recharge and to try to, to get into that default mode network in a positive way is because that's when you do that sort of mind wandering. Again, mm-hmm. as you had pointed out, your mind is going to take up 20% of resources no matter what it's doing, right? So if you're meditating or if you're taking a test, maybe test 25%. Um, <laughs> but so you, when you get into the default mode network and you allow the mind chatter to dim and just kind of meander, well, that's when you get some really good stuff going on. And this is from Farrah Shaw from Scientific American and his article, Why Your Brain Needs More Downtime. He says, while mind-wandering, we replay conversations that we had earlier that day, rewriting our verbal blunders as a way of learning to avoid them in the future. So it's kind of a safe space Mm -hmm. um, to revisit some of those and and Mm -hmm. not in a negative way. We shuffle through all those neglected mental post-it notes listing half-finished projects, and we mull over the aspects of our lives with which we are most dissatisfied searching for solutions. We sink into scenes from childhood and catapult ourselves into different hypothetical futures, and we subject ourselves to a kind of moral performance review, questioning how we have treated others lately. These moments of introspection are also one way we form a sense of self, which is essentially a story we continually tell ourselves. So that's one of the reasons why we have to have that time away from our work so that our brains can actually dwell on solutions, uh, dwell on how to improve ourselves, and also create a better sense of self. And to illustrate this point that our brains need to take advantage of every bit of downtime that they can get, Consider this 2012 study about blinking. I feel like I've been talking about blinking a lot lately. It's from Tamami Nakano of Osaka University, who recorded electrical impulses in people's brains as they watched clips of British comedian Mr. Bean. And he found that the brain can engage in the default mode network in the blink of an eye, literally. When you blink your eyes, the default mode network comes alive. And... Uh, the idea is that the brain is trying to catch its breath, even if it's just for that, that fraction of a second hmm. in blinking. And so when you think about vacation, it turns out that it's just the right kind of distraction for the default mode network. And it's really kind of like an extended blink for the mind. 
I can also see, though, with, if someone has a particularly busy brain, they might uh, they might almost be a little uh, uh, apprehensive about going on that vacation because it brings to mind just sitting on the beach, like next to your brain, in a um, in a beach chair, and your brain's just like, "Hey, what's up? Let's talk about uh, about stuff," you know. It's like a, a fight, right? Yeah. Like, no, I'm trying to relax here. Yeah. I don't want to talk about stuff. All right. So, what are some of the uh, the general benefits of vacation? Uh, some of these are well, no brainers, uh, no pun intended, but uh, but just to, to roll through them, uh, vacations revitalize our mind and body by distancing us from our job-related stress. Um, I, I the, f- the few times that I've traveled essentially to the other side of the planet, I like to think of it in terms of I'm actually placing the center of the earth between me and anything that could conceivably stress me out. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. so it's like a, a nice uh, earth barrier there. Um, also, vacations uh, allow us to drop into a new place, a new culture, surrounded by new people, new set of experiences, and uh, a new environment for our mind to chew over. So suddenly you have all of this brand new stuff, be it, you know, pleasant brand new stuff like the wonderful tourist attraction you're at or the more negative stuff like the tourists that are with you at the tourist attraction that you've been looking forward to. Uh, and of course, um, all the newness can generate new ideas and thoughts. And, uh, we also tend to kick forced concentration to the curbside. So by and large, you're going on vacation. There's not going to be any crunch time where you're like, all right, I really got to figure this out unless it's, you know, getting around town in a foreign metropolis. And finally, when you go on vacation, hopefully, hopefully you can get a decent night's sleep and maybe grab a nap or two. That's what I was thinking. The, yeah. the elusive sleep that we all are pursuing, you finally get a taste of that, and that makes such a big difference. Uh, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll talk about something called time poverty. All right, we're back. Yes, we're talking about vacation and now time poverty, which uh, actually doesn't have anything to do with Doctor Who. Nope. Uh, ever since the clock was first used to synchronize labor in the 18th century, time has been understood in relation to money. So we started to put time into three different buckets here. We have the wasting, the saving, and the using. Mm-hmm. And as the industrial revolution gave way to the technological revolution, we've seen a decrease in the amount of time it takes to do things. So just even the most rote things like doing your laundry or getting from, you know, place A to B, none of this stuff is quite as involved as it used to be. And so as a result, paradoxically, we have more time on our hands and yet we feel as though we don't have enough time. And part of that is because we keep cramming it with stuff to do because there's this idea that uh, the more time you have, the more you should jam in some work because time is money. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about how, you know, often you'll find yourself in a situation where you did an hour's worth of work and you washed all the clothes in the house. And these two things were, were for the longest stretch of human history, um, could not be done at the same time. Right. You ate food that you didn't have to grow. Right. Right. And harvest. Um, so this idea, this time is money, we don't have enough of it, is a concept known as time poverty. And in the article by Jenny Dearborn, Why Is Everyone So Busy? in The Economist, she says, quote, this makes time, that frustratingly finite, unrenewable resource, feel more precious. And as a result of time, or rather a lack of it, it becomes this kind of status symbol. And she says that Daniel Hemmermesh, who we mentioned earlier, calls this a yuppie kvetch. <laughs> This ethos that busier is 
better. And if you look at an analysis of international time stress data, Hammermesh found that complaints about insufficient time come disproportionately from well-off families, even after he controlled for uh, holding the constant the hours spent working at jobs or at, at the home. Mm-hmm. So the bigger the paycheck, the more anxiety there was about time in this kind of time poverty communication about it. Moreover, a 2011 poll from Gallup concluded, quote, the more cash rich working Americans are, the more time poor they feel. And it's this kind of it almost kind of builds into this work machoism. Yeah. And the Harvard Business Review had an interesting article about this, and it's called uh, Extreme Jobs. <laughs> this idea that really high-performing people in, in very lucrative jobs mm-hmm. are these warriors, and they're putting, you know, 70-plus hours of work per week in. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the article, they say it's like they're trying to prove their worth. It's akin to going up against the elements. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds, uh, in the more extreme cases, less like work machoism and more like uh, work masochism, you know? As if you're trying to tell your uh, employer, look at me, I hate myself. This is the kind of employer you want on your team because I will just bleed all over the place for you. Yeah, I will cancel my mm-hmm. vacations. I'll only take half of my vacation days. And we mention all this because we want to try to set up the conditions that are here, the the you know, corporate culture that's at play that doesn't say, hey, please take a boatload of vacation days. Right. And then this kind of warrior perception of people who are uh, overcompensating, maybe overworking their hours. So then the question becomes, well, what happens when we finally get to take a vacation? Well, leading up to it, and that's a, that's a big thing, too, is there's the lead up to the vacation, the, uh, the, the, the launch towards the vacation. And, uh, and it affects the way that we perceive time. The, the easy analogy here is do you think back to when you were a kid, right? And you're in the lead up to Christmas, and it just seems to take forever and ever because it's the thing you want most in the world, right? Um, but when you, of course, when you're a grown up, it's just another two months between, uh, uh, you know, between, uh, Halloween and, uh, and Christmas. But, uh, Vacation is kind of the adult version of this. Uh, you know, you have this this destination in time that you're looking forward to. But it's not just the temporal distance here, but also the geographic distance that plays into all of this. Uh, there was a 2012 study that was published in the Journal of Consumer Research, and they actually found that consumer decision-making is affected by the relationship between time and spatial distance. So in the study, the authors asked test subjects to imagine visiting a post office today and a bookstore three months from now, okay? Now, sometimes, uh, depending on, on the test subject, sometimes the distance uh, between these two places is short, okay? The bookstore is right around the corner. Uh, other times, it's a longer distance. Maybe the bookstore is uh, across town or in another city or another state. So the greater the distance between you and your vacation destination, uh, then the longer it seems to take, the slower time seems to pass between now and then. And in the same study, they also found that test subjects who imagined retiring far away, uh, you know, retiring down in Florida when you're living up in Minnesota, uh, they felt like their retirement was also further away in time. So the key here for the purposes of this study, of course, were business-related, and that spatial distances can change your perception of future time and make you impatient. Uh, but the breakdown for vacation is pretty clear. The, uh, the more of a destination vacation you have planned, the more it's going to cause the time leading up to it to drag. 
So that that's a bit of a bummer, right? Because yeah. you're really excited. Let's say that you're going to China, and we we're here in Atlanta, so you're mm-hmm. that's that's quite a distance. So you're sitting there, kind of nail butting for you know a couple of months, waiting for that moment. Yeah, but then again, um, you get to experience life longer. Like maybe you actually live a little longer by stretching it out. I don't know. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. No, um, the same sort of mind time happens while you're taking vacation and then when you reflect on that vacation afterward. So again, when we talk about time, we usually think about it in more linear terms and, and highly structured, right? But in inside of our minds, it becomes a bit of a jumble. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that psychologist and BBC broadcaster Claudia Hammond examined She calls this the holiday paradox in her book, Time Warp. She writes, quote, that the paradox is the contradictory feeling that a good holiday or vacation for us Americans whizzes by, yet feels long when you look back. And she says the reason for this is that, say, in any given time period, maybe two weeks, um, the average person would accumulate something like six to nine new memories because so much of what we do is rot- is routine, right? It's mm-hmm. the rote stuff that we do day after day. Um, there's not much out of the ordinary. But she said that on vacation, we can build up that number of memories in a single day because everything we experience is new, meaning that when we look back, it will seem to have lasted much longer than it really did. And so that's where you get this fast, slow paradox. While you're experiencing the vacation in a new place, it all feels like it's whizzing by. Huh. But then afterward, you get to linger on all those new memories that are made. And if you think of yourself and your brain as this, uh, this is just a collection of memories, not taking vacation or not being able to take vacation, uh, you're really shortchanging yourself. You're shortchanging this uh, flood of memories that makes up who you are. Well, that is exactly what uh, Ferris Chabre was touching on in that Scientific American article when he said that that mind-wandering, those moments of introspection, are one way that we form a sense of self. So you're right. You're, you're um, shortcutting yourself out of these moments that really add to uh, this sort of dictionary of self, this reference book of self. Now, to return to that... Uh that lead up to vacation, right? The months and months that uh, that occur before you actually get to take the trip. Uh, there's some interesting uh, uh, science surrounding uh, the idea that fantasizing about vacation can lead to poor decisions. And, of course, we all fantasize about vacations. Uh, and, and there are kind of two levels, right? There's like the early stage where you think, hey, maybe I should go to Hawaii. What would that be, would be, what would that be like? Without thinking about how much it's going to cost or how I'm going to get there or when it's going to uh, work best for my work schedule, that sort of thing. And then there's when you actually boil down to it and start start weighing the pros and the cons, right? And saying, all right, you know, how much is it going to cost? How long can I stay? What am I going to do when I get there? Well, a 2012 study by New York University's um, uh, Heather Cappies, published in uh, Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, uh, looked into this, uh, looking at how positive fantasies, such as a vacation, influence the decision-making process. Because these fantasies are powerful, right? They keep us going in those months leading up to the vacation, but they also can influence our behavior in the present. So in the study, she asked people to imagine a particular future about one of three topics. Wearing glamorous high-heeled shoes... Sure. Making yeah, <laughs> making money in the stock market and taking a vacation, okay? And so, and then she prompted 
people to think about how great they would be, just to make sure they're putting a positive spin about it in their minds, okay? You know, just imagine how wonderful those shoes are going to look or how much money you're going to win in the stock market or how great this vacation is going to be. But then uh, there's a control group as well uh, that she said, but would it really be that great? Would the vacation only be that great? Would the shoes be a little uncomfortable, et cetera? Uh, so they're inserting some doubt there. Yeah, to make sure that there's a control group that's thinking about these things in a, in a less than positive way. Then, after all this, everyone was presented with material on the pros and cons of these future events. So, you know, like a, a pamphlet about the wonders of high-heeled shoes and a pamphlet about the the, uh, the pain of high-heeled shoes, that sort of thing. Pamphlet about how great this vacation destination is and one about how it sucks. So... For each topic, imagining the idealized, positive version made people prefer to learn about the pros rather than the cons of the future event, especially if they were not seriously considering doing it. So the idea here is that uh, when we actually boil down and decide, yes, I'm going, that's when we tend to actually weigh the pros and cons more evenly. But in that fantasy zone uh, that's leading up to the serious zone, uh, we're, we're going to be more inclined to just focus on the positives. But the risk here is that in that fantasy period, you end up uh, uh, skewing your results towards, uh, towards the positives. And then that's going to affect your, your supposedly unbiased exploration of the pros and cons when you're planning the vacation. So this is the reason why... I made the decision early on when my husband and I went to Belize to engage in this uh, this escapade of climbing a Mayan ruin <laughs> that I don't know how many hundreds of feet tall it was, but it was incredibly steep. And while I was doing it in the 95 degree heat and looking down because I have a fear of heights, uh <laughs> Was wondering why I had made this choice. Yeah. Right? Possibly because I hadn't really pondered it long enough and it seemed like a really romantic, wonderful thing to do while I was planning the trip. Yeah, you end up just focusing on the pros and then when you actually start weighing the pros and cons, you're still weighted towards those pros. So that kind of gets us toward this category of travel called adventure vacations. Uh, adventure can be anything from, I, I don't know, like uh, riding atop a dolphin, which I don't recommend, um, you know, to some of the more risky stuff like helicopter skiing. Do you know of this? No. Skiing, where you're on a helicopter and it takes you to the top of a mountain and then you jump off the helicopter oh. and ski down the mountain. This <laughs> sounds like a great idea before. And this may be because some of those people are neophiliacs. We've talked about these people before. They possess a migration gene, a DNA mutation that occurred about 50,000 years ago as humans were dispersing from Africa around the world. And this is according to Robert Moises, who is a biochemist at the University of California at Irvine. And he says that these genetic variations affect the brain's regulation of dopamine. So this is that neurotransmitter that helps to process rewards and new stimuli. And variations have been linked to faster reaction times, ADHD, and a higher penchant for novelty-seeking and uh, risk-taking, which is why some people may, instead of seeking out a beach, seek out, say, tornado chasing. Um, actually taking vacation time and chasing a tornado down. And that's because you do have these these different reactions to dopamine and to new stimuli. But it's also because fear-provoking situations can put us in a state of mental clarity. And that's also really 
interesting for our memories because that sort of mental clarity means that we can commit those memories in a way that feel really fresh and interesting. So you take that risky vacation, uh, you chase after that tornado, and later on you revisit that material as if it's fresh and new. And that's because a type of protein within the cell walls of neurons called alpha-2 receptors respond to the release of noradrenaline, and they act to increase neural efficiency. And so then you have a boost of activity in your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex, as we know, is kind of like the referee of your emotions and your mm-hmm. memories. And so the the net-net effect is that is that you're you're kept on target. You're you kind of have this Zen mental clarity, and you've got the reward system amped up. Yeah, I feel like we probably all have uh, acquaintances like that who uh, tend to go for the adventure vacations. Um, there's one guy I know, and I'll see him posting on Facebook, and he'll post stuff like, I partied in the most dangerous city in South America last night, and which is great for him, but inside I'm also th- thinking, why would you do that? Why would Why would that be your vacation? But he's got the gene. What can you say? Can't help it. So... As we've mentioned already, people tend to return from vacations uh, relaxed and renewed, right? And according to Terry Hartig, an environmental psychologist at uh, Uppsala University in Sweden, we tend to spread those viral vibes to everyone we come into contact with when we get back. Um, this is his uh, take on it called a collective restoration. So you come, Greg comes back from uh, his vacation. Normally Greg's a bit uh, get a bit anxious at work, you know, but uh, he comes back, he's refreshed, he's renewed. And then all the people Greg interacts with, he kind of spreads a little bit of vacation vibe to them. And uh, so it spirals out into a more pleasant workplace environment for everybody, right? So that's his theory. He decided to put it to a test, uh, Hartig did. So he studied monthly antidepressant prescriptions in Sweden between 1993 and 2005. And he found that the more people that were taking vacations at a given time, the more prescriptions dropped exponentially. Uh, so overall, summer was the happiest time. Uh, so low prescri- prescription uh, rate and uh, and high vacation rate, and due in part perhaps because Swedish law has mandated that every worker have five weeks of paid vacation every year since 1977. And on top of that, workers can take four consecutive weeks off during the summer, so that tends to be when people take advantage of the, of the policy. Now, uh, you think about the, the fact that depression costs the U.S. economy an estimated $23 billion a year in lost productivity alone, and you can see where uh, a little more mandatory vacation might be helpful for uh, the populace. Yeah, and we should also say, too, that, you know, don't throw away your prescriptions here quite right. yet because uh, there are fleeting effects of the vacation. In the paper, How Do Vacations Affect Workers' Health and Well-Being?, Jessica DeBloom looks at a meta-analysis of the benefits of vacation and concludes that the restorative effects generally fade within two to four weeks. And in one of her studies of 96 Dutch workers, well, they all reported feeling more energetic, happy, less tense, and more satisfied with their lives uh, than usual during one of their vacations. And this vacation was between seven and nine days long. But within just one week of returning to work, uh, this began to dissipate. And a second experiment on four and five days of respite came to essentially the same conclusion. Now, there are a raft of studies on this, and they all kind of point to this, you know, one to three week um, attenuation of effects here. 
And it, a lot of it depends on how long someone was on vacation. So maybe that juicier, meatier, you know, four or five week vacation, maybe you had two weeks mm-hmm. of these effects. Uh, but they all point to the fleetingness. And that's, that seems a little depressing, but for me, it just makes the case that we need to take more vacations more often. Yeah. And plus, I mean, everything's fleeting, so. Life. Yeah, that's just life. So as we've discussed, we, we Americans, we're, we're a little, uh, hesitant to take those vacations. And you might wonder if some of that has to do with fear of missing out. Because I know that when I take a vacation, it takes a, a good two days for me to settle into it and shed my work skin. Yeah, I find it, find the same uh, situation in my life. And I often think about it in terms of launching uh, something into orbit, right? You have to... You, you have to deal with, you know, getting everything squared away at the house. You have to get somebody to feed the cats. You got to make sure your work life is in order. Then you've got to actually travel there. So you're having to, you know, fuel the rocket, launch the rocket. And then once you get up there, once you get into space, once you get on your vacation, you, you still got to decompress a little bit. You've got to deal with your, uh, with where the expectations of, say, a vacation, uh, beach house meet the reality of it. Um, you have to deal with all that and then let, and then slowly come down fr- from it. So, yeah, I tend to find it's like the second day before I suddenly find myself just like thinking idly about things that are not work and actually enjoying the experience. Yeah, because for me, those first two days really boil down to routine. And I was thinking about Charles Duhigg, who, mm-hmm. who uh, has a book called The Power of Habit. And he says that something like 45% of our decisions are just habit. And I thought, well, that's, that's about right because, you know, you have the habit of checking your email at a certain time or doing these certain things day after day. And so it would make sense that you have uh, your mind kind of circling and saying, but wait, you can't relax. We usually do this at this time. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Vacation and the brain. Uh, what happens before, during and after you finally take that trip to the beach or the mountains or what have you? Uh, hey. If you want to check out more of what we do here, you can check out more episodes of the podcast. You can check out blog posts, videos, you name it, at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you have thoughts about vacations and re-entry after a vacation, you can send those thoughts our way by emailing us at blowthemind@howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank <laughs> you.